Welcome to the Anthropology and Business Podcast, where you'll learn about the many ways anthropology is applied in business and why business anthropology is one of the most effective lenses for making sense of organizations and consumers. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in advertising, marketing, consumer behavior, organizational culture, user experience, and many other roles, you'll learn firsthand what it means to do business anthropology and how the work differs from academic anthropology. We will discuss issues like the pace and depth of research in business, our visibility and influence as practitioners, and what we can do to build our brand. We will also focus on the value and impact of our research in business so that we can help business leaders understand why they should be hiring anthropologists. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. All right. Well, thanks everybody for joining. This is Matt Arts of the Anthropology and Business Video Podcast, and I'm here today with Bob Marais. And um, Bob, first, let me say thank you for joining me. I'm, I'm really pleased to have you because of, of of all the people in the business anthropology community. You know, you're you're one of those top ones that are really trying to build the brand of anthropology and uh, really, really help all of us sort of a younger anthropologists um, succeed. So, thanks for that. First off, well, thank you. And um, so, um, you know, you're, you're a great guest to have on really for not only for myself to talk with, but for really all the listeners, you know, you have really impressive background that probably hardly needs an introduction, but, you know, you identify as a business anthropologist, you had 25 years in advertising and with your chief strategic officer position, 11 years as a principal and, and co-owner of a market research firm, five books under your belt, 50 plus articles and chapters, you know, some of those being for Forbes, Huffington Post, and really highly visible content that has made a big impact, especially that Forbes piece a year or so ago. And I think maybe more recently, the businessanthro.com website and community. And so, you know, really, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you here. And um, I think, you know, everything we talk about today will be a great value for all the listeners. So um, can you, you know, I know I gave a brief introduction there, but would you mind sort of telling everybody just, um, I know there's a lot to, to say, but maybe a, an overview of sort of your education and, and career history, if you will. Sure. Uh, and I'll, I'll do, give you the, um, hopefully the three minute or five minute version. Uh, I, I was an undergraduate major in anthropology, uh, went to graduate school uh, with a focus on psychological and cognitive anthropology. My dissertation fieldwork was in the rural Philippines. And I thought I'd be an academic anthropologist. Um, looked at the job market. Uh, I, my PhD was completed in 1980. The job market by then was pretty weak. But I also got wind of a program at uh, NYU's Graduate School of Business, even before it was called the Stern School of Business, um, that refitted PhDs in the humanities and social sciences to, business, to essentially become business people one way or another. And the one way or another tended to exclude their actual subject matter. So the focus of this program was not to say, take somebody with a PhD in anthropology and have that person apply anthropology in business. It was to take a PhD who had certain analytical skills, um, some, some basic abilities in terms of writing and speaking and so on, to function in a business environment. So it was like a mini MBA. It was a two-month program. And I took that program and then um, 
decided along the way that I was interested in marketing and specifically the advertising industry, particularly advertising because it was about uh, human beings' hearts and minds, and I was interested in uh, learning about them as an anthropologist. And I thought, oh, I can do this as an advertising professional too. The only difference it'll be will be is that it's in the interest of a commercial end as opposed to academic anthropology. And um, I was fortunate because I got a job right after the program ended at Gray Advertising. And I started out in account management, which is a um, sort of like a general manager position in advertising. I was very junior, so I wasn't actually a general manager in the, in the formal sense. But you're, you're managing a bit of strategy, creative, media, um, every, really every component of the, of the advertising business. And then you're interacting with the clients. Uh, if, if account planning had been available at that point in 1981, in early 1981, I, uh, I probably would have done that. Account planning is this really focused strategic side of advertising. And it had started in the UK in the 60s, but it didn't really reach the United States until the, the mid-1980s. And so I, this was 1981. So I started doing account management. And so now I'm going to make this story a lot shorter because after doing that for a number of years, um, I thought... You know, there's another aspect of advertising that I'm interested in that has now emerged called account planning, and I moved into that. I, I focused much more on strategy, and uh, about halfway, my, halfway through my overall career, um, but probably about two-thirds of the way through my advertising career, I switched to account planning. Well, I still had to do some account management jobs because of the nature of the businesses I was involved in. And so I focused more on strategy, and I was also incorporating anthropology by that time. There was, um, Steve Barnett had written about advertising um, and anthropology basically in 1980s, mid-1980s, and I got wind of what he was doing, and you may have heard of him, some of your listeners may have heard of him. He was really a pioneer in applying anthropology and advertising and in marketing. But I didn't want to do that back then. I, I had a good job and I wanted to keep it. Um, but by the early, by late night, I think it was 89, 90, I started working, integrating ethnography and a little bit into some of the projects I was doing. And that started to increase a little more. I always had a kind of anthropological sensibility when we were doing market research of any kind, particularly focus groups. But I was now integrating some ethnography. And then um, I, that increased. Um, so I was doing that. I was doing ethnographies. I was doing more research firsthand, everything from focus groups to ethnographies. Uh, and then involved in some quant as well. And then some friends of mine um, at a small market research firm was about 10, uh, 12, 15 people. And one of the two principals was retiring. And I had known them for many years. I'd worked with them. And they asked me if I was interested in joining the firm. Uh, at first, I said no. Um, and then we went out to dinner. And they convinced me that it would probably be a great idea because anthropology was something they needed and was booming. They were PhDs in psychology. Uh, and most of the people in the company had PhDs in psychology. There was one archaeologist. He's still there. The company still exists. It's Weinman Schnee Morace. So Schnee's the one who retired. The company kept his name in the middle, and then my name came at the end. And um, so I went there, uh, and I was there for 11 years as a partner, one of two active partners with Cynthia Weinman and our staff, as I said, mostly of psychologists and people generally experienced, very experienced in market research. A lot of what we did was qualitative. I'd say about half of a half of our work was qual. The other half was quant. Um, we were involved in a lot of client consulting on strategy. Um, my advertising background helped with that. 
Uh, and then I was doing more and more anthropology, more explicitly. I mean, it wasn't until I, I joined that market research firm that I put PhD after my name on my business card. Um, before that, the 25 years in advertising, people knew that I had an anthropology background and they knew that I applied it sometimes, um, but they didn't, it wasn't my primary job function. And it wasn't my primary job function. It was an important job function when I was in the market research firm, but we did all kinds of market research. Um, so I, I didn't, I didn't, uh, if somebody called and said they wanted to do ethnography, maybe we do that, but maybe I would say that's really not what you need. What you really need is a, is a conjoint study. Uh, or if they said we want to do focus groups, then I might say, well, maybe you need ethnographies. But, uh, and we often, we worked with a lot of clients long term, so we would do a lot of different types of research for them. Along the way, um, starting uh, in, um, I guess, the uh, mid-early part of the 2000s, uh, I started getting back into academic writing. I had done some based on my original research and some other work back in uh, late 70s, early 80s, and I put that aside and um, started writing academic articles and getting involved in books and so on, uh, and have been doing that for about 15 years. So engaging in the, the emerging business anthropology field was a big part of what I did. And, and I also started teaching uh, uh, first at the Columbia School of Professional Studies, but then I realized that I would be happier at the business school, and I knew someone there, and he got me in, and, and so I've been teaching there for several years, and that's been a great experience. And that's become a big part of what I do now because I retired from my regular business job in 2017 and uh, vowed not to take any commercial projects. Uh, I haven't, um, but uh, I've been involved not only in teaching, but I've written some cases and I've gotten involved in some other things in some other things in the, in the um, business school department. And that's really been gratifying. Uh, so that's where I am now. I just finished my fall course, which is, I don't, I teach this one course I, I co-teach every year, and then there's some other courses and other guest spots that I do throughout the year. Yeah, great. Yeah, well, thanks for that. You know, there's a lot to unpack in there. One of the first things that I think is interesting is, you know, the the business program that you, the academic program that you went into for sort of the mini MBA. I mean, in many ways, you're lucky, right, to have that experience, to have found that, because it seems like, you know, from our own conversation, like offline of this, there are many people who are sort of just you know, maybe falling into sort of applying anthropology in business, uh, sort of discovering it, you know, maybe after they've graduated with a PhD or, or MA right. or whatever it may be. Um, whereas, you know, you, you were really sort of, um, quite lucky to, to have had that pop up when it did, but the, but since most people don't have that, um, you know, do you think, I mean, I know you're teaching anthropology within the context of, of an academic program, but, you know, what what might um, others sort of be thinking of right now, you know, in terms of preparing themselves to, to maybe go in a similar path that you did? Well, it, it, in a way, it's a very hard question, because if people have said to me, should I get a Ph.D. in anthropology or should I get a Ph.D. in business anthropology? Well, there aren't a whole lot of business Ph.D. programs in business anthropology. Uh, you know, I'm not sure Wayne States is even active at this point. Um because Alan Bateau, who really founded that program, has retired, and uh, they may offer it still. There are a lot of master's degrees, like at UNT, where you went. No, I shouldn't say a lot. There are a few um, master's degrees in business anthropology. Um, and But I would recommend anyone who is interested in working in the area should seriously consider getting a master's degree in business anthropology, because you do pick up – I know at UNT, for example, you get some theory – 
Um, you know, you learn a lot about methodology. You're taught by bona fide anthropologists. Uh, you know, it's a good program. I just wish there were more of them. Um, of course, you can take, as an undergraduate, you can take uh, a little bit of business and a little bit of anthropology. Uh, Clemson has a certificate program. University of Pennsylvania has a program that is um, an organizational culture. Uh, there are a couple out there that are more certificate-oriented, and there's been some discussion about maybe some others. Um, as far as formal credentials go, though, I think an undergraduate degree in anthropology, but also if you're interested, for example, in doing consumer marketing, take a marketing course. Take a managerial statistics course. Uh, if you're interested in organizational culture, you should take a course in the business school in that, as well as whatever you can learn if you can, in your anthropology department about the culture of organizations. Um, and, and so crossing over is really important. Um, so that's, that's what I would recommend. I think, you know, if you're already in a PhD program in traditional anthropology and there's a business school at your university and you're interested in working in business, it would be a good idea to get a little bit of a taste of it. I was very fortunate that I, I had some training. Of course, you learn a lot on the job too, but um, it does help, I think, to make the case to say, well, I've taken... Now, here I have this degree in anthropology, but I also, I, I also have taken some business. It, it shows a, um, a commitment, among other things. Yeah, no, great, great recommendations. And so, you know, back to your, your journey, um, you, you sort of said how you left the PhD off your business card, you know, during your advertising role. And you, you know, were using ethnography, but you weren't sort of explicitly maybe identifying as an anthropologist and, and sort of, quote unquote, like doing anthropology. But at... At some point, at least as you started bringing in ethnography, how did you go about pitching that, you know, maybe first internally, but also to clients? And how did you get buy-in to sort of start bringing that methodology into, into the practice? Well, you know, it was, it's interesting in that account planning uh, was called, at the time it was introduced in the United States, one of the, the greatest new business tricks ever. Uh, because it was a way of separating strategy. There was a lot of theatrics to it. Um, it was a combination of research and uh, a little marketing acumen, um, certainly advertising, strategic planning. And if you could bring in a fresh methodology, which at the time I was initially doing, it was still pretty fresh. A lot of people are using ethnography now. Um, it added a little pizzazz to the whole process. So it was a relatively easy sell if I was when I was working at an ad agency to convince management, in some cases I was management, to invest in doing some ethnography or to convince my clients to spend the money on it. But of course, that's just the you know the the, perform, the performative side of it. Um, there's there's a much more substantive side of it, which is of course that uh, I would tell my clients, you know, and they would know um, they don't have all the answers. Uh, they don't seem to be getting them from focus groups or from surveys or from the other you know, in-depth one-on-one interviews that they're doing. It's just something that they're not, uh, they feel like they're not going far enough. They're not going deep enough. And so I would say, well, why don't we do this? Or, you know, the ethno- it might be ethnography. Sometimes I would apply anthropological thinking in focus groups or in in-depth interviews, or even sometimes in thinking about surveys, I bring in a kind of anthropological spin. But, but in doing ethnography, it very often had to do with um, the need to learn what we had not learned previously. We just, weren't, just seemed to be missing, and we didn't know what we were missing, and we thought ethnography as an exploratory sort of discovery technique would be worthwhile. But that's a little bit of a fishing expedition. Sometimes we would use ethnography to understand product use and context. 
So you want to understand how people use a salad dressing or how they go shopping for baby food or how they use an industrial lubricant or why they're not using a particular uh, type of industrial lubricant, why they're choosing competition. And, you, and it's a really good idea to go to the field to see that because as we know from surveys and focus groups and other um, interviews or, or, or uh, methodologies of that type, people are reporting what they want to report, what they remember, uh, you know, you're not, you're not seen. So, uh, you know, it's, it's um, like the difference between uh, believing what people tell you and believing with your own eyes. And um, with ethnography, you can hear what they tell you and then you can see with your own eyes. And that's a real plus. Yeah. So, you know, as you first started doing that, especially since the firm wasn't really doing that kind of work before, what kind of challenges did you have, you know, for, and I'm asking this sort of in context of anybody who's maybe moving into this role and they're sort of trying to make sense of how they apply, you know, academic anthropology in the business sense. So like, you know, what, what kind of challenges did you face as a young anthropologist? Uh, well, first of all, I wasn't that young at the time. And that was an advantage uh, in the sense that I, I, I'd learned enough about business and how it worked to learn the language and the customs of people in business. And so I knew how to sell an idea. And that's important. Uh, you know, if you don't, if you don't have that context, if you don't know enough about business, it can be very hard because you don't know your audience very well. And I think it's important for anthropologists to look at, and I'm not the first person to say this, um, but to look at the businesses they're working with, whether it's the one they're working for or the, their clients or any other enterprises as, uh, you know, tribal societies, they're small scale societies. They've got to learn their customs. They've got to learn their language. And, uh, and that's how you can get into their heads and figure out what might be acceptable to them. That's sort of a guiding principle. The other side of it would be the specific project. And what I would do is I would, going back to what I said before, is that for a specific project need, I would, um, I would say, you know, we've asked the questions. Uh, we have we have we have tried to discover why people aren't using your brand as much as we'd like them to use, and we're still not getting to where we need to go. And so um, this could really be a worthwhile way to get there. And uh, and they would very often be convinced. The other thing that I've told people, and this is the advice I give to um, young people, um, is that it's a really good idea to either have a case that you've worked on or to read about a case in, say, the Journal of Business Anthropology or in the Epic Perspectives Collection and or anything on Epic that uh, you can go to Epic um, and, and the, the Epic website and you can, um, you can post that. You can post the, Matt, maybe you can post the, um, the Journal of Business Anthropology uh, uh, journal link. Uh, there are lots of great case studies and you can pick the one or two, whether you're in tech or whether you're in consumer products, your organizational culture. And of course, you don't want to have people read the article because a lot of those articles, even on Epic, they can be a little academic. The Epic ones are a little more consumer friendly than a lot of the academic journal articles, but you can synthesize them. And you can say, uh, if you haven't done it yourself, if you're working in a particular category, you can say, well, you know, this method was used in this category, let's say consumer packaged goods, and here's what they learned, and here's how they applied it in a strategy, and it really had a great effect in the marketplace. That's how I teach MBA students. That's sometimes how I would convince clients. Uh, usually, I could do it with a story based on my own experience when I had clients. With students, sometimes I talk about my own work, but sometimes I talk about published work. And I think that's, that's the advice I would give someone if they're having a hard time, um, you know, to really illustrate 
concretely. If you're too vague, people will just say, this is just too expensive and too time consuming. I don't, I don't get it. Yeah, that's no, great. Pretty. I think, uh, you know, it's one of the things that comes up often when we speak. So I think that's a very concrete way of, of giving, pointing somebody in the yeah. right direction. Now, you know, in there, you know, obviously we contribute to research, but, you know, you, you ended up in your advertising portion of your career in the chief strategic position. And I know you feel that anthropology can contribute to, you know, far more than just conducting the research and producing the sort of insights. So, what else do you think, you know, from your own perspective, what did you think your contribution was at the time? And, you know, how, when you were in the strategy position, how does that maybe relate to something like business strategy? Well, as I said, I had an advantage uh, because I, I worked in business and was able to bring methods and theories from anthropology in, in, in a business context. I wasn't just trying to shove it in. Um, if, if we're talking about a, specific research role vis-a-vis a strategy role. My main role was strategy, uh, and, and the research was in the service of strategy. And so I would need to select the methodology that best suited the learning need uh, and then apply that to ultimately a strategic discussion and the codification of everything I'd learned in, into a strategy. In, um, in the uh, handbook uh, of, of anthropology and business that um, Rita Denny and Patty Sunderland did, I have an article that speaks to very directly to your question uh, because it has to do with the um, how does an anthropologist or someone with anthropological training insert himself or herself into the strategic planning process. And, and the way of doing that is to fully understand the business problem uh, and, and to to lay out the research in a, in a way that responds to the learning need that would address that business problem. And there's actually a really good article that I was in teaching uh, called Backwards Marketing Research, where you think in terms of where you want to go. You don't know what the answer is, you know what the solution is, but you go back to the kind of research that's needed to answer those questions. It seems very simple, but a lot of people don't think that way. Um, but in any case, uh, the idea would be to have some hypotheses, some thoughts about what you uh, might see in the field, partner with your client, always keep your client as a thinking partner, bring your client to the field, have them, you know, what I always loved was that, say, if I was doing ethnographies in the morning and the afternoon, say three hours in the morning and three hours in the afternoon, you know, one, one, one house home visit and a shop along in the morning and then the same thing in the afternoon, that was a frequent pattern, not always, um, there'd be an hour and a half break in the middle and the hour and a half break was there to get lost from one ethnography to the other, you always have to allow the time, even if you have GPS. Um, but also to meet with the client over lunch and talk about what you've seen and heard and talk about the implications of it, both strategically and tactically. And that's how you integrate yourself into the planning process as an anthropologist. So rather than what you're doing be a handoff, you know, here's the research, here's the report, you know, you present it in your PowerPoint, you're done, thank you very much, on to the next one. Um, there's more of a um, sustained involvement in the field, just brainstorming. And then once when the report is being written, communicating with your client, again, in a partnership, a kind of co-creation of where you're going strategically. So they're on board when you're presenting to the larger group, whether it's in a workshop to come up with more ideas or to management, to talk about the future planning process. Uh, so, uh, for me, a lot of it was understanding the business, understanding how to write a strategy and knowing that, 
I knew what part the research would play in the strategy when it finally was delivered. And all the way through partnering with the client uh, and knowing that the research was at, in the service of what needed, was a strategic blueprint, really, because the blueprint is what, whether if it's advertising, it's for a creative team, it's for promotion, it's for a promotional team, if it's for uh, brand innovation in terms of um, a new product development or line extensions of a product, uh, it might go to R&D. All of these things needed to be ultimately transferred. Tra- um, uh, uh, they, they, they needed to be not really so much translated, um, but transformed in ways that were palatable to these other constituencies. And you as an anthropologist need to know how to do that. And the more you can stay involved as a partner, the better. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's something I was going to bring up here in a bit, but um, just to maybe dive into that. So, you know, in terms of selling it to the various stakeholders, you know, after you have your sort of insights, Obviously, like, you know, going to lunch and building that rapport with your your project sponsors is sort of critical to getting that buy-in. But then, like you said, it's got to go on to other teams oftentimes. And, you know, if you're not involved in that, it can certainly get watered down. And even over time, even if you're involved up front over time, it can maybe get watered down. And, you know, there's always organizational memory problems. So did you find there is any way to to codify that work or to transform it, to use your words there, like, you know, in a in a particular format that worked best to hand it off? Was there... You know, you know, not just giving out a deck, but was there anything particular that you did to shop it around that you found worked really well to get people to to really embody the findings? Uh, well, there are a couple of ways. One of them is that um, in, in market research, it depends on your client in terms of what your ultimate report will look like. You know, some some of my clients would say we want you know just the facts, or we just want the uh, we just want the basic report. We don't even want you to make recommendations. But those usually weren't long-term clients, and they weren't even clients I really liked working with very much. What I wanted, as I said, was a partner. And they would want the report to, you'd have your findings, and then you'd have your insights, would be a, which would be a leap from you know the, the core of what you found in the field or from wherever you might have found it. Um, so this wouldn't only apply to something that was ethnographic. Um, and then there would be a very clear section of insights that could be drawn from the findings. So you take your client along in that way and they would ideally have an epiphany, the same epiphany that you had when you were first considering the findings. Maybe you had the epiphany in a field and you wanted to transmit that excitement to them in the presentation if you're giving it uh, in their presence or if it were even just the written report. But the insight section is really important. And then of course the recommendations flowing out of that. So that's one thing. And that's pretty basic. Um, and but I think something that really I found worked really well for um, certain clients was to add a little more color to it. Uh, so, for example, I have an article that is just that just came out in the, uh, the Journal of Business Anthropology, uh, a pet food product that I project that I did. It was actually the last big project I did before I retired, um, and um, and so it was on uh, fresh pet. And uh, it was a very unusual project because my company was hired to do two components of qualitative research. So it was kind of a mixed methodology, but we didn't mix it all the way through. We only mixed it at the end. And that's part of the point of the article. So um, the client who was an insight director who we had known from work we'd done with her many from over many years at Post Foods, a cereal company, had now moved to Fresh Pet as the insight director there. And she asked us, to um, she asked my partner Cynthia to spearhead 
the focus group portion of it and put her psychological spin on it. And for me to spearhead the ethnographic side of it and put my anthropological spin on it. And in an unusual way for us is that she wanted us to sequester ourselves from each phase of the research until eventually a joint report would be created and then it would be mixed, if you will. Um, and so my partner did her thing and I didn't read it. I didn't usually normally I would have attended the focus groups uh, and sat in the back room. Uh, and she did that. And then I did, was done sequentially in that way. And then I went to the field. And by the way, the client went to the focus groups and the client went to, on I think, if not all, but most of the ethnographies. Um, so she knew what was going on, um, but we didn't. And uh, my partner and I didn't. And there were some other people from our company that were also involved. And uh, when I was uh, writing up the report on my side, um, I had a kind of... Um, epiphany. Uh, my, my partner had an epiphany of her own about cognitive dissonance. And if anybody wants to find out about that, they can read the article and they can read the article also to find out more about what I'm about to say, which is that um, I was talking to um, people in their homes and I asked them to imagine um, essentially uh, a, um, two poles. One of them was uh, fresh food. One of them was um, dry food as in, you know, what you get in a bag. And one of them was what would be called wet food, what you get in a can. And that was their nomenclature. And that was what the client used. They divided the category into wet food and dry food. That's how they saw it. That's how they thought the consumers saw, saw it. And I went in with, in a way, that assumption, which, you know, maybe wasn't the best research question because I could have just said, how would you think about it? I mean, I did ask them that. I, you know, I had them talk about wet food versus dry food, but it was still an opposition. You see, So I had an assumption in that way. Before that, I did have them talk about what dog food was, you know, that sort of purposefully naive question. But then I, after they did that, even if they didn't get to that binary, I gave it to them as a binary. What was interesting is we had also been talking about homemade food along the way because people would say, sometimes I make my dog a little bit of homemade food, not just feeding them scraps at the table, but maybe when they're sick, I make them a little chicken soup. Uh, you know, they think of their pets as their children, and uh, which isn't a big revelation in that category. Um, and they would give their dogs fresh food that they take. What I realized when I was talking to them is that, and a number of these people were fresh pet users, but not all of them. Some of them were open non-users, people that were using other brands that were open to using fresh pets. So we looked at, we talked to both types of people. And what I realized is that fresh pet didn't fit the binary. It wasn't wet food and it wasn't dry food. It was somehow closer to fresh food, partly because it was bought in a refrigerator case. They have SKUs, stock-keeping units, for those who don't know what that is, that are um, that are not in the refrigerator. But the one that we were focusing on was in a refrigerated case, and uh, it really looked kind of like a pepperoni or, or a salami that you'd slice and then put into a dog's bowl. And it looks feels very fresh. And it's bought that way and it's stored that way. So my epiphany was that maybe this category is not a binary. Maybe it's a hierarchy. And maybe the hierarchy, which is this was through the discovery process, was dry food, because everybody always thought dry food was sort of the most basic, wet food, which they knew their dogs loved more, but they thought it was good for their dogs to chew on dry food, and they thought, thought maybe the wet food had too much fat in it. Fresh pet, and then at the top of this hierarchy, there was homemade food. And so 
maybe that doesn't sound like such a big revelation, but it's, it's, a, it's like this enoch edict category that we talk a lot in, about in anthropology, that my client had this edict idea, their perspective, uh, that they were, that the category was, was this binary opposition. They didn't talk in terms of binary opposition, but that's how they thought about it. And that their customers did, and even in the research approach, maybe we were too assumptive, we thought they did too. Um, turned out they didn't. And it wasn't that explicit. You know, if you just ask them, you know, they wouldn't say, well, it's a hierarchy. You had to discover that in the conversations. And it wasn't just one person, it was a few people. And, uh, you know, I had taken enough psychology when I was an undergrad to remember Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So I had this little idea. It was a spark of an idea when I was working on the report. And I thought, oh, what about the hierarchy of feed? And it was just, it sounded funny. And then I did a little graphic on the PowerPoint, and I thought, this is, you know, this is kind of cool. This is fun. It's a handle. It's not meant to be an advertising line. Uh, I, I explained it by saying it's not wet food. It's not dry food. It's fresh pet. Um, but that wasn't meant to be an advertising line either. It was a positioning. And it was a way of positioning the product in the, in the, the brand in the minds of customers that was very different from the way they they weren't sure how to position it. That was why we got this assignment in the beginning. They were they were looking at different ways of positioning it. But to position it as being very different from the rest of the category, a very different way of thinking about the category. And what was cool about it was it was also a flip for the clients. So uh, when I talk about emic and edict, you know, those terms were not they were barred by cultural anthropologists from linguistics and now they've been barred by um, consumer anthropologists and you know the, 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 the purists would say, that's not really what they are. That's not really what they mean. But they're certainly, for my purposes, very helpful, uh, heuristically, that is, to say the clients thought about it in one way. The consumers kind of did, but maybe we weren't quite sure. And then it turned out maybe they could think about it in a different way. And, and so Fresh Pet could be positioned as within a hierarchy, closer, very different from wet and dry, very different, and, 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 but and closer to um, homemade food, but that also connected to it being in the refrigerated case. So it all fit with what the brand was in terms of its reality, in terms of its form and, and the way it was sold, point of purchase and so on. But it was also really cool for the presentation. So this is a long story, but uh, it was meant to say that the, the use of the hierarchy of feed and the way I did it in the meeting generated a lot of excitement. And, and so what I would suggest to um, people that work in the world of, of consumer anthropology, at least, and maybe other areas of, of business anthropology, is don't be afraid to be creative. Don't be afraid to add some, um, not just pizzazz, but add some strategically informed insight that may be um, uh, graphically depicted or um, certainly telegraphic in the way that you express it, that can get your, your client or your colleagues excited, they understand it right away, and then they can apply it. They got it. And then that could then be transformed, or sometimes they use the term transposed, into a strategy, more, more formal strategy document. So yeah. that's the long story. Yeah, no, <laughs> but that's an example. Yeah, no, but it's a great example. You know, I appreciate you giving real-world examples. I think that's helpful to everybody. And, you know, just to, to build on that, I oftentimes recommend 
to students that I speak with to develop some basic design skills because I think having those and to communicate your ideas visually goes a long yep. way. That's right. But you know, also in there, so you you know, you mentioned Maslow's hierarchy and edict and emic. So you're you're pointing to you know something that comes up in in a lot of the conversations we have when talking with people, and you know, it's questions around you know, to say the pace of research being different or that, you know, maybe in, in business, you know, we don't get to bring in theory or it's, you know, it's somehow like a, you know, like a watered down version of what you're doing academically. And so um, in your career, at what point, I know you've spoken in other presentations, I've heard you speak and you've mentioned like liminality. And so I know at some point you were starting to bring say theory, you know, in more overtly into what you were doing. And maybe that wasn't always brought in, but when did that start to happen in your career? Like at what point were you established enough to really make that a little bit more overt? Well, it, it really depends on the client. It's not so much of it being established uh, in that, uh, you know, I always had the basic credential to do it. Um, but in fact, in the, um, the uh, liminality um, oriented study that I, that I, that you're probably thinking about on, on this breakfast food was for honey, honey bunches of oats. Um, that was the one with the insight director that ultimately many years later um, got us into the Fresh Pet Project. Um, I don't know if I talked about liminality in that presentation. It was actually a focus group based piece of research. And, um, and I, the insight was sort of theoretically informed about um, breakfast as a kind of rite of passage and the importance of liminality within that rite of passage and how the brand could kind of own the transformations that occurred during that liminal period. And there are a lot of business anthropologists, a lot of them have written about liminality, a lot of anthropologists have written about liminality. Um, so uh, it, uh, it wasn't, so, but it's not so much a matter of um, feeling comfortable. It's, it goes back to reading the client. You know, uh, any business anthropologist can tell you this, uh, or, uh, that, that there are some clients that will hire you because you're an anthropologist and they want that credential and they want you to lay it on. They want you to talk about liminality. They want you to talk about any kind of theory that you can bring in. And it really enhances uh, their position when they've hired you. Um, and it helps uh, convey the idea um, some clients either will say, or you just know, want you to keep it under the hood. And so, for example, in this Fresh Pet study, there was a lot that I kept under the hood um, because they weren't particularly interested in hearing about some of the theoretical ideas. You know, sometimes I'll talk about things like, um, like in the refrigerator case, I talked about um, making the unfamiliar familiar because the refrigerator case is something that really didn't belong in a fresh, in a, in a pet food section. Uh, and so how do you make can you get people to see it? That's a design challenge. And that was also part of the report that I worked on um, and the discovery process. But uh, that was an easy one. Uh, I, don't, I didn't mention edict and emic to my client. Uh, and, and I think it's a lot of it is that, you know, even in 2020 slash 2021, you know, anthropologists can be seen as eggheads. Um, you know, even psychologists and business can be seen as eggheads. Some clients want that, some don't, and you've got to read your client. You've got to know what they want. Uh, so it's really not a matter of, of, for me, it's adjusting to what they want and what they need. I want to do good work, and I'm going to apply it no matter what, the theory. But uh, although some studies are purely ethnographic, they're purely observational, and there's really no need for theory. Um, but the ones where theory helps, uh Depending on the client, I'll, I'll make it. I, I, well, I'm not doing that kind of work now, but but I, I made it either more explicit or less explicit. 
you know, that's hopeful. So, you know, pivoting away from maybe your, like your, your life, you know, as, as a practicing anthropologist and maybe more so into what you're doing now, which is you know, teaching, building the brand of, of business anthropology through the businessanthro.com community. I'd like to maybe, um, you know, to dig into that a bit. And so what would you, um, you know, well, first off, let me ask you this. Do you think business anthropology has a branding issue? I do. I Something do. I think we've talked yeah. about. So, Okay, go on. Uh, I think part of it is that, uh, you know, despite the fact that people have been writing articles on either anthropologists and business or, you know, ethnography being applied in marketing or organizationally, um, you know, for decades. I have a whole collection of them, um, you know, going back to the 80s. Um, people are still unclear about what it is. Uh, and so work needs to be done. So how would you define it for everybody that's listening? How would I define business anthropology broadly? Well, it partly depends on my audience, um, but I would say in general, it's the, put very simply, it's the application of ideas that are derived from anthropology and methods that are derived from anthropology in business, although more specifically, I would say in marketing for organizations, uh, organizational culture, organizational culture change. Uh, again, you know, it's, it's like those examples that I talked about, getting into specific examples in design studies, in user experience. So it starts to divide itself into very specific areas, and that helps define what it is, because it's manifested in different ways in, in, in different domains. Um, so, so the most basic, it's, it's, the really basic is applying the method because a lot of people get ethnography right away because that's what anthropologists do. But I always like to say that um, theory turbocharges uh, the work you're doing in most cases, not all. Um, and when that happens, you know, that's where you get to those really great aha moments. Um, and that, and depending on whether it's an organization or a, um, or a consumer product or a technology uh, experience or you know, any of these kinds of things, it, the, the, the anthropology manifests itself very differently. And so what do you think we all need to be doing to, um, you know, to be more public, to say, get hiring managers interested in what we do to, or, or clients to get interested in what we do? Any thoughts I, on that? Yeah, I, I do. I think that, um, I'll relate this to a question that I've been asked, which is, um, should I put my anthropology up front in a job interview for a user experience job? You know, uh, first of all, uh, it's more likely that you'll see an ad for a user experience job than an anthropology job in business. Um, and what I, my answer is always that you should, uh, you should distinguish yourself as an, as an anthropologist working in user experience by talking about very specific skills you have. So, for example, people in user experience like ethnography, but a lot of them aren't trained in how to do ethnography. You are trained in doing it. Um, and you, and uh, a lot of people that are applying ethnography and user experience, or maybe it's just observation, don't really know much about theory. Uh, and so if you can add that, that's a tremendous plus. But of course, you, the word theory could scare people. So that's where I would probably get to a very quick, you know, elevator pitch type example of how theory might help something. Um, but I, but I, but I do think those are those are some ways in. Um, I don't know if that fully answers your question, but that's that's how I start to think about it. 
And so building on that, you know, what do you think? You know, I, it, when I look around, I would say that though there are many of us doing you know, great work all across the globe, in a lot of cases, unless we've started our, our own businesses or work in maybe smaller practices, we oftentimes don't seem to have lar- you know, a seat at, at the quote-unquote table, if you will, in large organizations yet. So what for those who are practicing, you know, do you have any suggestions of what people can do to to increase their influence, you know, within their organizations? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. It's in a way it's an anthropological skill. It's um, listen and observe. Um, Understand, as I said before, what the core business problem is. Understand what the corporate culture is all about in terms of what it will bear, what you could bring to the party, you know, what how much you can bring to the party. Uh, but I think a lot of listening and observation is critical because you'll learn you know, businesses have so many big problems and so many little problems. There's plenty to work on. And so the, 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 the question is, as you're listening, the question you have to ask yourself is, when you're listening to when you're in meetings and when you're engaging with clients or you're engaging with prospective clients is um, how can I help them solve this problem in a way that someone else can't? Um, and I think that's true for RFPs, a request for a proposal. You know, if you get it and you're competing with other people, if you're, say, a supplier, um, you have to bring your unique skill set to that. And again, without getting too heavily into the jargon, just talk about the way that you could help them uh, in that, whether it's a fuzzy front end or a discovery process or a vexing um, user experience problem, that you can, you can gain, give them access and understanding and ultimately insight that they won't get from anyone else. Um, and, you know, you know, you're positioning yourself as a distinctive property, a distinctive set of skills. And I think you'll be invited to the table because you'll have something fresh to add and they'll listen to you more. I, I don't know that you're going to get a job as chief culture officer the way Grant McCracken would like to say. I think it's a, it's a great objective. I mean, it's, you know, uh, I would love to see every company have one, um, maybe more than one. Um, but I, I also think, you know, it depends on your job title. I remember when we were doing the summit in 2019, I was asking um, some people uh, who were user experience folks. Uh, and I also had this conversation with some design people. So how do you identify? And some of these people have PhDs in anthropology. How do you identify around the office? How would you identify in an interview? And they said, as a user experience expert or as a design expert. They didn't try to push themselves into the table as an anthropologist. That isn't to say that sometimes that's not exactly what a company wants. They want the anthropologist there. But if you don't know that, then you have to discover it through a listening and observing process. And if somebody says, well, we, I actually got a call like that from an ad agency. A friend of mine was creative director there and his boss, the CEO, said, you know, we need a social anthropologist because we're pitching, I think it was Red Lobster. This was a few years ago. And he said, oh, I know someone. And he called me, and I basically did a little consulting job with them, talking about um, food and restaurants and that kind of thing. And and they apparently showed some of the video in a new business pitch. And it was all about me being an anthropologist. I never saw the video. Um, But uh, sometimes that's exactly what people need, but, you know, not always. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's good input. And I think a lot of that really would extend to – you know, the related question of, of selling it to, again, sort of the hiring manager or, you know, the potential client, right? It's not always just selling it internal, but of course, selling to them as well. And so I think those are all good tips for people yeah. listening. If you were, um, 
You know, I know we you, we talked about this very briefly at at the outset because of your your sort of mini MBA experience. But if you were and and in that context, you recommended sort of cross training and you know I, I would say maybe like upskilling in you know various business areas, tech, design, you know all, all those things. I think contribute. And you also mentioned you know a lot of the the good academic programs for people to look at. But if there was one thing aside from like that stuff, if there's one thing that you could do over again if you were starting your career, you know, is there any other way you would approach it? What would I have done differently? You know, um, in, in a way, I don't, uh, it's hard for me to say, I think, I mean, I would have made some, you know, I would have some better insights faster, um, for sure, um, uh, and maybe listened better along the way so I didn't make some mistakes that I made, um, so certainly some of those things. But in terms of the way my career flowed, I kind of like the way my career flowed. You know, I'm not, the, there are, if you talk to any given business anthropologist, or anthropologists in business, depending on how they want to define themselves, they all have different paths. You know, the the series that Elizabeth Powell is doing for the Journal of Business Anthropology is so terrific. She interviewed uh, a, a lot of people, including me, but a, a lot of people who are, who are business anthropologists about their career paths. And the most recent one um, talks very directly about the path. Um, I, I'm glad that I learned business. That you know, I, I got my degree, then I learned business. I learned a little bit in the NYU program, but mainly learned it on the job and then was able to integrate anthropology. That's what worked for me. I'm not saying it works for everybody, but I think if you're going to be an anthropologist working in business and succeed, you really have to have a good business sense about you. So, um, and I also think it's great to work in different areas, you know, in a way that you have. You've worked in a lot of different functional areas. And I think that's an enormous asset, asset in business because you, you see through a number of different lenses and that can only help you. Um, you know, anthropology isn't just one lens, but it's certainly in general a very different lens than, say, someone gets has if they just have an MBA. Um, but if you, if you really think hard enough about a, a company that you're working with or a business, business problems that you're dealing with, and you sort of look through their lens a little bit, not just MBAs, but, you know, people that are just working in business – um, you see differently. That's what we're supposed to be doing anyway as anthropologists. And, um, and so my career is, in terms of the basics of my career, it's gone the way that I liked. I don't think it's necessary. In some ways, it doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, here I am doing traditional anthropology, doing field work in the Philippines, and suddenly I'm working gray advertising. Um, you know, that, that doesn't make any sense for a lot of people. Um, but it, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with the way it worked out. And I know that a number of anthropologists that I know in business, and I would probably say, I would say, if not all, the vast majority of people I know who are anthropologists working in business, they're very happy that they, they, they took the route that they took, even though it may have um, been uh, a little rocky at times. The road might have been a little rocky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. It's funny. It's always interesting to hear the, the different paths in. It is also very varied. So, um, you know, in closing, you know, you obviously have a lot of things going on, the teaching, businessanthro.com. So is there anything you would like to sort of bring up, anything you'd want to mention that you know, would be good for everybody to hear? Uh, a few things. Uh, one of them is if you're in business school and watching this, uh, walk over to the anthropology department and uh, try to take a course at least in method and maybe another course in theory because it will enrich your business experience, no matter what you go into in business. If you're an anthropologist, 
who is an undergraduate, as I said before, and you're interested in business, it's a good idea to take a course or two or three, whatever you can fit. Um, and the same thing for if you're in graduate school. Um, uh, the website that I'm involved in um, that you've been such an asset to as well, um, businessanthro.com uh, is uh, a wealth of resources. Uh, we've got a lot of good um, information there. Um, and I would recommend that anybody who's interested um, in this field go and visit that site and and look around a little bit because then you'll you'll find some interesting things to read. You'll see some podcasts and other other um, other resources there that will um, educate you and give you some ideas. And the last thing I'll say is that um, if you're interested in developing your career in this field, um, talk to as many people that are in it as possible, do as many informational interviews as you possibly can. Um, and, you know, if you're, if you're interested in a design career, um, you'll benefit from talking to an anthropologist, um, even if you don't even use that much anthropology because it, some of the ideas can still be applied, some of the methods can still be applied. And so where can all the listeners find you? People can find me, uh, let's see, there are a couple of ways. Um, you can Google me, and the first thing that comes up in Google is my Columbia uh, business school website and my Columbia business, my Columbia email is there. Um, they could also contact me on my, um, basic email, which is on my Gmail account, which is rmorace67, uh, dot, I guess, at gmail.com or whatever, at, at gmail.com, at gmail.com. Um, so either, either one of those ways is good. I think my, yeah, I don't like my other information is on our business anthro site, but those are two ways. All right, great. And so, um, Bob, thanks very much for coming on. I really appreciate it. I, you, you offered a lot of great advice that I think everybody listening will really benefit from. So great. thanks very much. Happy to do it. Thank you for listening to the Anthropology and Business Podcast. To learn everything you need to break into business anthropology and why business anthropology is one of the best lenses for contributing to business success, visit my website at madarts.me, where I cover many topics related to business anthropology and beyond. There you will find all the podcast episodes, blogs, and news. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.